We know that we're living in the sixth mass extinction of nature. We are losing species at a rate that in our lifetimes we've never had before. And fortunately, we have an opportunity as miners to play a really positive role in not just preventing the decline of nature, but in most mine sites you will find that the environment is better off as a result of the mine being there than not. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. In today's podcast, BMO Capital Markets CEO Dan Barkley interviews Rohitesh Dawan, CEO of the International Council on Mining and Metals, or ICMM. Rohitesh's distinguished career has been at the center of sustainability, resources, and geopolitics. In addition to his leadership role at ICMM, Rohitesh serves on the expert panel on climate change for the UK government's Partnering for Accelerated Climate Transitions. Now, here is Dan Barkley's interview with Rohitesh Dawan. Welcome to the Sustainability Leaders Podcast. I'm Dan Barclay, CEO and Group Head, BMO Capital Markets. Today, I'm joined by Rohitesh Dawan, Ro for short, CEO of the International Council of Mining and Metals, ICMM. We're recording this special episode from our 31st Global Metals and Mining Conference in Hollywood, Florida. Ro, it's great to have you here with us today, and I'm looking forward to what I'm sure will be a fascinating conversation about metals and mining, its roles and responsibilities, as we face climate change and a historic global energy transition. So about a year ago, your predecessor, Tom Butler, we had done this a couple of years in a row, we had a very engaging conversation about the E, the S, and the G. A lot has changed in the world since then, and a lot hasn't. And I thought maybe we should talk a little bit about how you came to be at ICMM, and what you expected, and how has the first year gone? Dan, it's great to be with you. You know, I think we're living in a period that I call dog years. It's seven years worth of change in, <laughs> in one year, because just think back to how much has changed over the last 12 months, and we are seeing real significant change in short periods of time. So I've been in the job a year, but it feels longer because of how much we've lived through. And Dan, I'll tell you, there was a simple reason why I accepted this job, and it was because I believe sincerely in the power of big business to make a difference in the state of our planet and in the prospects for people. I spent most of my life in South Africa, where the mining industry is so critical to the lives of people. I felt that the best way to make an impact on the people that I care about, the people that I saw growing up, is by having a mining industry that is successful, but also is contributing positively to the communities around it and to the state of our environment. And our organization is founded on that principle, that by the largest mining companies coming together, voluntarily setting ourselves really ambitious commitments on ESG, we will set the industry standard for good performance. And in doing so, we will make a positive difference to the lives of people. And as we recover from COVID, that mission has never been more important. And so I couldn't be happier doing this. And there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Well, it's great. And you think about that, as you said, the dog years, as we sat back here 
two years ago even, I would say people were fighting the concept, right? They hadn't embraced ESG. And I think it's actually something where where large corporations have got to, where the large mining companies are, not just the CEO of the board, but really across the entire management suite, they've actually embraced this change and they embrace the story of it. And they're embracing that it actually makes their business better, right? This isn't something where you're trying to check a box. It's actually driving business performance and business opportunity. And I'm sure you're seeing that with your CEOs and with the council. Absolutely. Dan, two years ago, ESG was probably written in small letters in a grayed out font. Today, <laughs> ESG is written in capital letters with bright red fonts. I mean, that's the change we've seen in this in the last two years, where earlier, I think the question you might ask was, what's the business case for sustainability? Today, I think the question you're asking is, what is the sustainability case for business? Correct. That's how it's turned on its head, because we've recognized that the prospects for business are intricately tied to the prospects for society. And so without doubt, this is not just one of the top 10 issues on any CEO's list. It is a number one topic in any conversation you might be having on the mining industry, but equally in other industries too. Because yes, on the one hand, it is a risk if you don't manage it well. And we know in the mining industry, when we don't get these things right, it has tragic consequences for people. So the stakes are really high. On the other hand, actually, I think the mining industry has a history, a track record of contributing positively. And it has clearly demonstrated that when you do this well, it creates significant business value. So I can tell you, Dan, one thing that really surprises a lot of people about our organization is it's the CEOs of the largest mining companies, 27 of them gathering around the same table. And people think, well, I wonder what you talk about. I wonder if you're talking about <laughs> the state of the industry or you're talking about how to grow the industry. All we're talking about, literally 100% of our agenda is ESG. There's nothing outside of ESG that we discuss because it is of the highest strategic importance. You know, we often use the word social license for the same conversation. And once upon a time, that's not what you needed for social license. And today you have. Both of us were at COP26, and I truly enjoyed my experience there, both on the awareness side, but also on the confidence about how much change had already happened. I thought maybe one of the first questions we would ask is we think about the E, we'll talk with climate first and go a little deeper. How do you think about how that agenda's changed for ICMM? Think about under Tom's leadership, now under yours, and how much faster it's changing. You did a great job the other morning talking about uh, your priorities and how you're focusing the organization, but maybe take the audience through some thoughts there. Totally, Dan. You know, first, my view on COP26 is that it over-delivered politically and it under-delivered scientifically. Which is really interesting, right? Because the outcome from COP26 was more ambitious than the politics at the time would have allowed. You would have thought going into it. But the scientists tell us that what we've come out with from COP26 doesn't do enough to get us to below two degrees. So what that's telling me is that it makes it even more important that the business sector shows voluntary leadership because governments have not done enough. And I've been attending these COP meetings since 2010. And what's interesting for me is for the first five or six years, they used to be government-to-government negotiations and the business sector was the sideshow. I'm sure you'd agree with me, Dan. This time around, the main action happened where the business pavilions were and the government negotiations were a sideshow. And it just shows how things have changed because people are looking to the private sector to show leadership and demonstrate action. And in that regard, Dan, I'm really proud that 
in the lead up to COP26, the mining industry was the first hard to abate sector to commit to a goal of net zero scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 or sooner. I was really proud that we as ICMM were able to make that commitment, which is a condition of membership for the 27 member companies. This is not just talking the talk. We walk the walk when we say we're committed to climate because we have a net zero goal, as I say, the first of any major emitting industry to do that. And we've committed to set in the next two years really clear short and medium term goals where they don't exist and clear pathways for how we're going to get to 2050. We've committed to reporting in line with the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures or TCFD. We've committed to making public all of the assumptions and data we use in setting our targets and reporting emissions and to report those emissions annually for scopes one, two, and three and have those externally verified. So that is the full package for us of climate action. And I just want to say a lot of people may be surprised to hear that today the world's largest copper mine is powered 100% by renewable energy. And if you go to a mine run by, let me pick any company, Anglo-American, in Brazil, Peru, or Chile, it's 100% powered by renewable energy. And in the next few years, some of the largest mining operations in the world will be 100% powered by renewable energy if they aren't already. I think people will be really surprised by that because you think of mines as these big, dirty, polluting environments and they're simply not. We're making arguably faster progress than almost any other hard to abate sector because, frankly, we had to start on this much earlier than everyone because emissions are a major driver for us switch to renewables. But actually, security of supply and cost have been other drivers why companies have done this for a long time. Well, and I think one of the more powerful presentations last year was what I call the incentive system now. And people had gone from resisting change to embracing change. And as they embrace the change and they put new things in, so let's do simple diesel truck to electric truck, very simple. Uh, what they found is they actually operated with a lower operating cost. They found that they were actually more reliable. They found that the operators didn't harm the equipment as much. And so when they were finished doing something for the right reason, they actually ended up with a business reason that was actually quite powerful. I call that the incentive system because if what you think is there's a series of penalties out there, you'll manage your operations to minimize what you do to meet the rule right, or to avoid the penalty. In the incentive system, you'll do more. And so I remember sitting around with company presentations over the last couple of years, and they'd be talking about one or two projects. Mm. They stopped listing projects because they're now 150 deep, 200 deep, 500 deep, all across the company in all kinds of different ways. And so we've moved to this incentive system, which is you're actually going to get a benefit the more faster, better, harder you chase these concepts that incentive flywheel drives real change in behavior. I love the way you've explained that, Dan, because it, may, it makes so much sense that when you start to frame things that way, you may, may come up with solutions that you didn't think of when you were framing it differently. And maybe I could just give you a couple of really Please. interesting oh, examples. Yeah. You know, one is Codelco, a major player in the copper industry, has found that by transitioning their fleet of vehicles to electric, not only are they saving on energy costs, not only are they reducing emissions, but it's cutting maintenance by 30%. And it's cutting diesel particulate emissions, of course, by 100%. That is really good for the health of people. So 
you know, they may not have gone down that path by saying we want to cut maintenance costs by 30%, but that's going to be the outcome of going electric, which is good for the planet. It's good for the people that work underground. And it builds resilience in the business in a way that they couldn't have built had they not gone down this path. Another really cool example is the Los Bronces mine run by Anglo-American, where they have been installing photovoltaic solar panels on a floating island on a tailings dam. If anybody's never seen a tailings dam, imagine a very large swimming pool where we house mining waste. And this tailings dam allows for the generation of about 150,000 kilowatt hours of energy, clean energy, because it's solar PV every year. But in addition, because this floats on top of the dam, on top of the liquid, it prevents evaporation by 80%. So suddenly what began as an energy solution actually ends up making a positive difference on water as well. And so when you start to frame it around the incentive system you've described, you gain all sorts of co-benefits that you didn't even think of when you started down the path. Well, let's use that. That's a good trigger. When you think about the three climate priorities for ICMM, uh, you did a good job explaining it, but it wasn't just decarbonization. So why don't you take us through those three priorities that you've set? Absolutely, Dan. So the three priorities we've set for us in the e-bucket are climate change, water, and nature. Because frankly, Dan, they are indivisible. These are all deeply connected, both in terms of the root causes of the crises and the way we're going to solve them. So let me use an example of where they really come together. We know that we're living in the sixth mass extinction of nature. We are losing species at a rate that in our lifetimes we've never had before. In 2020 alone, Dan, we lost 100 species. They became extinct. So we're living through a real obliteration of nature. And Fortunately, we have an opportunity as miners to play a really positive role in not just preventing the decline of nature, but in most mine sites, you will find that the environment is better off as a result of the mine being there than not. And again, this may surprise people, but there's a really fun exercise. If somebody's listening to this and you have your phone close by, do me a favor, go onto Google Maps and put in any mining location globally. I'll give you a couple of examples, but don't think I'm only telling you these because these are the good ones, because I promise you, most will give you the same answer. You could try Cerrojón, you could try one of Vale's operations in Brazil. What you'll find is that because the mine disturbs such a relatively small portion of the land that we occupy, we have the opportunity to make the rest of the land a haven for species. So if you look at Cerrojón, it's about 30,000 acres of land. And if you look at it on Google Maps, what you will find is that the darkest green spot showing where there's most forest cover, as a result, most species, is where the mine is. That's not what you think. You think the mine must be this giant big hole that's barren and lifeless. No, what we found is that by operating a mine and the benefits it generates, we're able to conserve and preserve a much bigger share of the territory than if we weren't present in that location. Now, that tells us that We have the opportunity to invest in forestry. We have the opportunity to invest in nature-based solutions that help the nature crisis at the same time as helping us reduce our emissions. And then on the question of water, and again, a really interesting dynamic between how we consume, what we consume, and the impact on water. So many people will know that lithium is essential to the technologies of the future. 
Now, traditionally, the way we've produced lithium in Latin America, and Latin America contributes about, this technology is about a third of the global production of lithium, we use brines to produce lithium. Now, to produce a ton of lithium takes about 2 million liters of water to do. Now, I live in London, so let me use a UK analogy. That is the amount of water I would be consuming in the UK in 36 years. And we simply cannot keep producing that way. We have to find ways, and we are finding ways to produce that use less water. So we're using geothermal brines, we're using clay deposits to gain lithium. Because honestly, if we produced all this lithium, and we helped solve the climate crisis, but we made the water crisis worse, that would be a bad outcome. That's why we at ICMM have put these three projects of environment around nature, water, and climate together because they are so inextricably linked. Well, and let's use this because I think that piece around the ecosystem and the local mine, one of the unique things about mining is ESNG, right? In lots of other industries, it's really an E conversation, and there's not a lot of S, there's not a lot of G, or if it is, it's got small impact. When we think about the mining business, the S impact is actually enormous, and it's local, and it's got real, real power. Robert Friedland presented at his keynote speech yesterday, and he took through the benefits that were going into the local community in the DRC, whether that's jobs, whether it's health, whether it's schooling. But that, why don't you just comment a little bit around some of the agenda for ICMM on the social side and some of the things that are really encouraging for you about that. Let me start, Dan, by first um, congratulating you and the team for convening a really important conversation on the social impacts of mining. At the conference where we had Eduardo, the CEO of Vale, Tom Palmer, the CEO of Newmont, and I, talking about where the industry has gotten this right, and frankly, Dan, where the industry has gotten it wrong. Because the social aspects are both incredibly positive, but we also need to recognize that at times, communities around our mines have either been left worse off or certainly haven't had as much of the benefit as they should have. And it's important to consider both. So where it really works, what we found is a situation where the community understands the benefit that they're going to gain from mining. They've had a chance to share the concerns they might have about the negative impacts of mining. And there's been a, a social compact, if you will, that's been built over time that's based on trust, on openness, and on a mutual respect for each other's interests. And here I'm sitting with you, Dan. Just today, we launched a set of tools as ICMM that are available to everybody for how to do social performance well, because it's a specialized field. On the one hand, we all intuitively know and think about social issues. On the other hand, it really is deeply technical. So if anybody out there is passionate about this, but not sure how to do this well, there's a set of tools available to do it because we've learned when it works, it really works well. On the other hand, as I said, there have been cases where you have government countries where mining happens, but host citizens aren't seeing enough of the benefit. And that is when people are saying, hang on, you're coming into my backyard, you're extracting the resources that my country owns, and I'm not seeing the benefit of it. What's going on here? And this is where I'm really proud of the commitment we made last year, December, as ICMM companies to make public our contracts with governments. Because we think it's really important that citizens of host countries see the nature of the exchange between governments and companies. So they have a legitimate claim to what is owed to them as a result of being a local community. And what we're finding is it's improving the quality of the conversation enormously. It's helping us have really good and healthy conversations with communities about the local infrastructure we're going to be building, the jobs we're creating, the value we're adding to local economies through supply chain, through direct job creation, and in the way we operate. 
And I think that's the future because, Dan, your team did a brilliant job naming the panel that we held mission critical because that's really what social is. It's mission critical. There is arguably nothing more important as we look to the future, the rate at which mining needs to grow it will only grow if we have the support of local communities. And that's why we're placing the highest attention on this issue. Well, I thought it was interesting, as you went through all the largest CEOs in that first morning of the conference, I think it was Valet that used the term social value, right? And they're talking about shareholder value, stakeholder value, and social value. And it's actually something they measure now. They're very public about reporting on it. They've obviously had some historical challenges that allowed them to innovate to where they are today. But I thought it was really refreshing that we had seen that much change in a relatively short amount of time. One of the points that's come up through the conference is really how metals and mining supports energy transition and the importance of that and the scale of what needs to come. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind adding some thoughts to that conversation for the audience around the nature of that, the scale of what needs to happen, and some of the insights around some of your partners and how they're thinking about it. Absolutely. We're living through a once-in-a-generation rebasing of the metals intensity of the global economy. What I mean by that is all of our lives are enabled by metals and minerals. Just wherever you're sitting right now listening to this, look around you. Everything you touch and feel is either grown or it is mined. Really as simple as that. But when I say that we're living through a change, it is because in the future, the things we want to consume more of tend to take more metals and minerals to produce. A typical car that you may drive today that, you know, runs on petrol or diesel, when you switch that to electric, because we're all going to be driving electric in the next 10 or 20 years at the latest, that will be taking up to six times the metal inputs of a normal car. And we know that we need to replace fossil fuel infrastructure for energy generation with renewable energy infrastructure. And like for like, a wind turbine takes nine times the number of metals as a gas-fired power station. It just gives you a sense of how we're increasing our consumption of metals and minerals because we are moving to a world where things are electrified and where they're powered by renewable energy. And that means the consumption of metals and minerals goes up enormously. And this is where people may have heard of the term critical minerals, that these minerals are now becoming critical for the kind of infrastructure we need for the lives we're going to lead in the future. But Dan, here is the promise that we make as the world's largest mining companies. Even though these metals are critical, we will mine them as if they were not. Because when you say critical minerals, what we don't want people to think is, because they're critical, we will do anything possible to get them, because we won't. We will mine them as responsibly and sustainably as possible, as if they were not critical, because we still think that even though they are, they need to be done in a really responsible way. And I'll give you just an example of that. Since 2003, we have had a commitment that we will not mine in a World Heritage Site, because those World Heritage Sites are so important to the world's biodiversity that it is not worth the risk of mining in those locations. It should inspire confidence in people that we are voluntarily taking the steps that as we supply these minerals that are critical for the future, that we will do so in the way that's most responsible. And what we're finding is that across most commodities, this is going to result in a huge increase in demand. People may have heard about lithium and cobalt being in particularly short supply. And maybe again, just to give folks a sense of what we're talking about, I live in the UK, a country of 70 million people. There are about 32 million cars on the road. If you converted every British driver's car to electric, you would need twice the global production of cobalt 
just for the UK. Now, when you think about that across, <laughs> across every other nation, we're sitting here in a country of 300 plus million people. What happens when every American and every Chinese and every African and Russian and Indian car becomes electric? We're going to have to find new ways of doing these things. But our commitment is that we're going to do them as responsibly as possible. Well, and I think there was a great slide in one of the decks talking about what does 2050 look like versus today? And this was really evident back in Gore's Inconvenient Truth video, which is population. And the population is not stopping, right? Whether you believe it's going to be 10, 11, 12, doesn't matter by 2050. You also believe that world GDP will go up, right? And so therefore, those that have less income today will have more. And with more comes, as we know, higher energy density in their lives. And so it's not just about how do we replace what we have today with something new. There's actually added capacity that we have to bring to the table, right? And I think of some of those, we've got lots of examples on the transmission grid. We've got lots of other places where this need for critical minerals is only going to go up. And we need to be focused on that. Absolutely. And then just to say on that, today as we stand here in 2022, there are 800 million people globally that still don't have access to electricity. Our job and priority as a world has got to be to fill that gap. But that number is going to grow, as you say, because of population growth, because we're going to be more urbanized, because our way of life is changing. So as we look to close this gap between now and 2030, which is when we hope to achieve the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals, you're really right in channeling our attention to the fact that while we're doing that to close the gap of the people that already exist today, we can't forget that the scale of the challenge is only growing. Why don't we pivot to our last topic, one close and dear to our heart, which is the financial sector and the financial sector's role in helping these mining leaders think about the future. You've been doing this work for a while. You've watched banks, financial services, advice for us, things that we should be focused on thinking about that would help us run our business better. Well, Dana, you folks play such a systemically important role in the world's transition to net zero. I can't think of another industry or group of people that I think have a greater opportunity and position to make change happen at scale. And I've seen you and your colleagues do that really well in many occasions. I'll give you just one example. You helped us make it a global industry standard that we would manage tailings, which are mined waste, responsibly. Because three years ago, following the deeply tragic accident at Vale's Brumadinho mine, which led to the loss of life of 270 individuals, we produced a global industry standard together with the UN and with the Principles for Responsible Investment, the financial sector, that would see every tailings dam currently in operation, of which there are 3,500 globally, being managed as responsibly as possible. And it became a condition of ICMM membership. Every ICMM member has committed to implementing the standard as quickly as possible in agreed upon timelines. But what you and your colleagues have done is you've allowed us to not just make that a requirement for us, but to make that a global industry standard so that minds everywhere are striving to, in most cases, I hope, meet the standard and tailings management. So to the extent that you are able to take what is good practice or best practice in one part of the industry, it doesn't have to be us. I mean, I hope that many occasions it is us, but there may be others around the industry, not in ICMM, who are doing excellent work. And to essentially democratize that, spread it. You have this incredible ability to 
make it flow by making it a condition of investment, by encouraging others to do the same, this is where it can really change things and make change happen at scale. I think, Dan, frankly, if I was to pick one topic of where I think the focus should be on how you can help in a really timely fashion, it would be on biodiversity or nature. Because we are on nature and biodiversity in terms of our maturity and understanding and management systems where we were on climate maybe 10 years ago or eight years ago. But the scale of the nature crisis will need us to move even faster than we did on climate. So I think the financial services sector has such a critical role to help define the right metrics, to use them in decision-making and to make it spread across the industry. And efforts like the task force on nature-related financial disclosures, of which we are a key participant and supporter, are one way in which the financial sector can help us do that. Yeah, and I think that, as you said, is underdeveloped in terms of taxonomy, the why, the how, scope of the issue. I'm sure those that are practicing in the space, it does feel like it's well-developed, but mm. in, from the chair I sit in, it feels somewhat nascent. That's good advice. I know for us as a bank, the way we've thought about our role is advising our clients, because in the end, we're not the client. We are a service provider, if you like, to the client. But in a lot of ways, what we sell is intellectual capital, right, or knowledge or insight. And so the way that we can be the best advocate on behalf of our clients is to actually give them the best advice. And so we've set up a number of learning centers, centers of excellence inside BMO. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to our Climate Institute this mm, morning. I did. Which was an attempt for us to create an intellectual capital center inside BMO to deal with the variety of the issues and whether it's you know risks a bank faces, risks our client face. Or just how do you think about some of the more complex issues? You can imagine setting scope three for us as a very difficult issue in our higher meaning sectors. And how do we have best thoughts and best advice? Well, you have to actually have insight to do that. And then in our business, I've pivoted our entire business to climate and ESG. And the concept being that it's probably the most important thing in our lives. And that means everybody has to be smart. Some banks put groups of 10 or 15 people together. I want 44,000 people at BMO that are on this page and working for our clients. Why don't we wrap up with one of those great questions, because sometimes these conversations can be a bit heavy. It felt good and balanced. Yeah. What are you most optimistic about these days? What gives you that extra step in the morning as you think about some of these more complex issues as we go forward? Dan, you know, I am amazed. If you had told me we would be sitting here in 2022 with 88% of the world's GDP covered by a net zero commitment, if you said this to me five years ago, I would have told you to take a hike. There was no way that the conditions five years ago would have allowed us to get to this point. And people would have said, no, but it's going to take 20 years to get electric vehicles. How are we going to build all the charging infrastructure? It's a bit like the conversation we're having at the moment on hydrogen, for example. We're saying hydrogen may be a really important fuel for the future. And some of the naysayers say, but that's 15 years away. That's 20 years away. Everything happens so much faster than we think it does because we are living through an enormous period of societal change. And what I'm encouraged by is that coming out of this period of societal change, we all seem to be rediscovering our humanity. We all seem to be rediscovering what's really important to us individually and collectively. <laughs> you know, some of us have quit our jobs because we've realized, hang on, living through this pandemic has made me think really differently about what I want out of life. But this is a movement that's happening collectively in society where we're all suddenly stepping back and saying, we're really not comfortable handing over the kind of world we seem to be on the path to create to our kids. We want it to look different. We want it to feel different. 
And I think that's amazing because it could have gone the other way. Collectively, you might have said, we don't know how much longer we have on this planet. Let's just, <laughs> let's just do what we want to do and have a hedonic lifestyle. But that's not what's happened. And so I'm really encouraged that we've chosen an enlightened path, it seems to be, overall, on the questions of sustainability and the kind of lives we want to lead. And I think that's only going to continue. So everything that we stand here today and we think looks impossible and seems really hard, just remember that so much of what we take for granted today seemed impossible five years ago. Yeah, I share your view. I'm fundamentally an optimist. I believe in the power of human innovation. I think that was actually your fourth factor. That's right. ESGI, if I remember your speech correct. That's right. Which is around innovation. And in my mind, the creativity of the human condition. And what we have done as a society was we invented everything we've got today. And we need to reinvent tomorrow or invent tomorrow. Maybe it's not reinvent because it's not there yet. But that dynamic to me gives me actually hope. The fact that we've actually had a collective conscience on this topic where I would have said two years ago we didn't have it. Four years ago, it was a sparkle in activist size. It does give me hope and optimism. Bro, thanks for your time. Thanks for your insight. Thanks for your leadership. I found your remarks the other morning inspiring. And we're going to sit back and watch the wonders you're going to weave in the next few years. And thank you for spending the time with us today. Dan, thanks so much. It's such a pleasure and well done for a brilliant conference. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.